There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This episode of Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki, which is that great solution to the problem of not having anyone to practice your English with, either just um, a teacher of English who can give you some lessons, or let's say someone from the UK who you could speak to on a regular basis uh, and learn English from in that way. Well, with italki, you can do those things uh, through the magic of the internet. It's not magic, obviously, but anyway, through the internet, you can now do that using italki. And if you sign up for some speaking time, uh, italki will send you a voucher, which is equivalent to about one lesson. So basically, it's like a free lesson. Um, and uh, to get that offer, you can go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing? Here's a brand new episode for you to listen to. And this one is another Rick Thompson report. It's time to talk about politics again. Um, and uh, ever since the general election in the UK of last week and the results came out, I've had people sending me messages asking me to talk to my dad about the whole thing so that you can understand it a little bit better. Uh, apparently, people like to get the news of politics from my dad because he's able to explain things in a fairly clear way, which is great. So um, the story of British politics continues in this episode as I talk to my dad about the most recent developments, specifically the results of the snap general election which took place on the 8th of June. Um, obviously, a general election is when all of the MPs, the members of parliament in the UK's House of Commons, are chosen by voters across the country. The party with the highest number of MPs wins the right to form a government and the leader of that party becomes the Prime Minister, the leader of the country. At the moment, our Prime Minister, or before the election, our Prime Minister was Theresa May of the Conservative Party and she called this election just five or six weeks in advance. That's why it was called a snap general election. I talked about it uh, to my dad uh, last month on the podcast and Theresa May's decision for doing that was to make sure that she had a proper mandate from the people before beginning the Brexit negotiations because at, at that time the Conservatives were doing very well in the polls and they expected to win a landslide victory. So um, they expected to, to win a bigger majority and, and also everyone expected Labour to lose miserably. But the results were quite surprising. So here is a quick summary of those results. Um, it ended up in a hung parliament 
which means that no party won enough seats to gain an overall majority. Uh, the main parties, obviously, in, in British politics are the Conservatives and Labour. Uh, Conservatives, hoping to gain a bigger majority, actually lost 13 seats. So they now have a total of 318 seats. By the way, there are 650 seats in the House of Commons. Each seat represents a different area of the country. Uh, 650 seats. To win an outright majority, you need to get over half. So uh, that's 326 seats minimum. The Conservatives ended up with 318 seats. They lost 13. Labour gained 30 seats and they now have 262. But this is a huge failure for the Conservatives. Even though they've got more votes than anyone else, it's still counted as a failure uh, for them. Uh, We'll go into the details of of why in a moment. Uh, The Scottish National Party lost 21 seats uh, in Scotland. And this is significant because they won so many seats in the last election and the SNP are all about gaining Scottish independence. So it's a kind of a blow for Scottish independence there. Um, UKIP, the uh, Eurosceptic uh, United Kingdom Independence Party, are out completely. They lost the single seat that they had, so they're out. Uh, they were the party campaigning for the UK to leave the EU and for immigrants to leave the UK. But what's happened is that the UK Independence Party have left uh, the House of Commons. Um, since the Tories are the incumbent party, they actually get the first opportunity to try and form a government by making a deal with one of the other parties. And that's the position at this moment. We'll expand on it during our conversation. But the words turmoil and disarray are again being used to describe the messy and complicated condition of politics in the UK today. So let's talk to my dad, the professor of broadcast journalism and former BBC newsman, for some much-needed clarity on this whole subject in order to find out what happened, what it all means, how Northern Ireland and Scotland are involved and how this all relates to the ongoing story of Brexit. As ever, watch out for all of the key language as it appears. Uh, There's lots of political language in this episode, which applies mainly to political systems in the UK, but also could be used to talk about politics and international relations in other countries. Also, there are the usual fixed expressions, idioms and phrasal verbs that you would normally find in any natural conversation. Remember that um, if you're interested in the language, that in episode 352 of this podcast, which is nearly 100 episodes ago now, uh, I explained some key concepts and vocabulary related to the whole subject. So if you need some clarification and you want to, uh, you want a reminder of some of the important words and terms relating to all of this, then you can check out episode 352 in the archive. And even before that, in episode 82, I did another one which explained the key concepts about voting and governments in the UK. But now, Let's hear from my dad, Rick Thompson, about the current state of politics in the UK just a week uh, after last week's snap general election. This is the Rick Thompson Report with Rick Thompson. Hello, Dad. How are you today? Hello, Luke. I'm okay. Thank you very much. How are you? Very well, thanks. We have to start with a weather report, as usual. How's the weather? Well, I understand it's been pretty hot in, in Paris. Here it's um, not so hot. Uh, cloudy, um, bit changeable, windy, uh, not unpleasant, but, um, you know, 
lot of cloud about and it, apparently the weather forecast says it's going to get better here so we're probably going to get some nice warm winds from the south okay all right how's the garden fantastic it's a very good year for the roses to quote elvis costello and um yeah the the, the flowers everywhere are really good this year lovely all right well good that's the weather report done it sounds pretty good now we have to move on to the political stuff because you've kind of become my in-house sort of political correspondent on this podcast, haven't you? Yes, I have. Uh, I don't know whether I'm qualified to do it, but I mean, uh, I'll try my best to tell your listeners what on earth is going on here in the UK at the moment. It's difficult for even the best experts to get things right these days. Yeah, it is. Um, the last time you were on the podcast was about six weeks ago. And uh, we were talking about the snap general election called by Theresa May. Um, I, I'm sure that my listeners remember because uh, these episodes with you seem to be quite popular with them. Um, and surprisingly enough, do you think it's strange that my listeners are interested in all this stuff about politics? Well, well I hope they are. I think that um, politics in general, particularly in Europe, is a very interesting stage at the moment and i hope they don't get too bored about talking about the uk and the brexit issue but it is it's going to be seen historically as being a big issue and uh, some of the things are very difficult to understand things that are going on so we try and unpick it as best we can and i hope people are interested in that i think they are because every time something big happens and there have been lots of big things happening recently every time something big happens uh, people write on in the comments section on my on my website, or they send me emails saying, uh, "Can you please talk to your dad about this? You know, we need a Rick Thompson report about <laughs> right. you know whatever it is. Okay. You know, even even sort of small things like uh, a duck fell off a bridge. You know, can you get your dad on the podcast to talk about the duck that fell off the bridge? Um, you know, all these different events. So I'm an expert on ducks ducks falling off bridges, actually, but um, I'll try and do politics instead this time. Okay, then. Um, and yes, the, the snap general election was the last time we talked. It came as a surprise to everybody, not least because Theresa May, the Prime Minister, had said repeatedly that she wasn't going to call an election. It wasn't necessary. It's the last thing we needed. She needed, she needed some certainty. Then she went for a, two days off, a little walk in Wales, and came back and called an election. And um, it looked like uh, she was doing it simply because the opinion polls were so heavily in the Conservative Party's favour that she couldn't resist having an election to increase her majority and damage Labour for a long time and probably get rid of uh, their leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a cynical move. Uh, and I think on the last podcast, I said, you know, some commentators think this is a very cynical move. And when she says that uh, she needs a bigger majority to strengthen her hand in the Brexit negotiations. Well, my feeling was that it wouldn't make much difference to the Brexit negotiations. Yeah. Uh, the issues remain the same and um, they'll be struggling to get a good deal from the EU, whatever happens. OK, so so that was the decision six weeks ago. A new uh, general election, a surprise, and the Tories thought that they would you know, gain more seats. It was a chance for them to... 
uh, make the most of the advantage they had over Labour. Uh, and they also said that they needed a stronger support going into the Brexit negotiations, this mandate from the people. Uh, so everyone expected the Tories to get a kind of landslide victory because Labour were all over the place with their uh, split in the party and sort of people losing confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, and stuff like that. Okay, then what happened? Then what happened? Yes, that's a fairly reasonable uh, analysis. And and, um, the opinion polls were so strongly in favour of the Conservative Party, they were at one stage 20 points in the lead, which would have given them a huge Commons majority. Uh, And the newspapers, which are overwhelmingly pro-Conservative, were uh, going on about Jeremy Corbyn being completely useless, unsuitable and uh, dangerous man and all that kind of thing. It seemed very, very unlikely that um, the, the the situation would change, but it did. And throughout this, you know, a month-long, five-week-long election campaign, the polls narrowed and narrowed for a whole number of very interesting reasons. Uh, one of them was that Theresa May herself conducted a very poor campaign. Um, she nobody really knows what she believes in. She she doesn't seem to have any strong, passionate views about anything, um, in contrast to Jeremy Corbyn, whose position in 30 years as an MP has never changed, and we know exactly what he stands for, which is basically he's a socialist, he stands for fairness in society, uh, and he kept explaining that we have seen under the Conservative Party the gap between the rich and the poor get wider and wider, more people having to resort to using food banks in this country, What's a, uh, what's which a food? was unheard of. What is a food bank? Food bank is uh, basically you go and get free food, which is donated by people and comes from the shops when uh, they can't sell it. Okay. So uh, there are lots and lots of voluntary organisations all over the country collecting food, and people who need food and can't afford it go into the food bank and uh, they they get a, a bag of food. And you know this is happening in the UK in the 21st century. Yeah. So Jeremy Corbyn points out that the poverty has increased. Statistically, it has. Children in poverty has increased. And um, he's basically anti-austerity and says, uh, we've had enough of this. Seven years of a Tory-led government hasn't worked. The austerity um, policy hasn't reduced our deficit in any significant way. And um, he said, we need a change. And people started to respond to that because he was sincere. He was passionate. And he was logical, whereas Theresa May became known in some of the newspapers as Maybot, which is means she was like a robot, yeah. and was uh, briefed by her advisers to just keep saying what we need is a strong and stable government. Strong and, and she stable. Said it, strong and stable. And stable. That's exactly right. And she said it so often that it became a kind of a joke. Um, and what else was she saying? Well, all sorts of bizarre things. She was um, uh, saying that she wanted more selection in education. That means what we have called grammar schools here, where at the age of 11 all the kids take an exam and the clever ones go to a good school and the other ones don't. And it's been something that um, is highly controversial. And a lot of the people in her party didn't actually agree with it. The policy, obviously, was to make sure that the uh, nationalist sentiments that went to UKIP yeah. in the last election, yeah. um, United Kingdom Independence Party, which is anti-immigration and anti-EU, yeah. uh, they needed to um, win them back and they needed to um, 
win over the hard right elements in her own party. So it was very much a, a kind of hard um, view of where conservatism would be. Mm. And uh, it was rejected. Um, very interesting things have come out from this election, Luke. Well, we, we actually need to know what the results were. Uh, because uh, I, I, I expect that my audience are aware of it in the news, but um, the story was kind of overshadowed by the Trump uh, story with um, the former head of the FBI, um, you know, um, testifying against him in court. That seemed to be the leading story of the day. But uh, the election results came in that evening. Uh, what actually happened then? So the um, instead of increasing her majority to... Um strengthen her position uh, when the election results came in much to everyone's astonishment she had failed to win an overall majority at all an overall majority is when your party has got more votes than everybody else put together so it means you can pass whatever you like in the house of commons um, and she lost her 17 seat overall majority in this election and and has a position uh, where she is in a, a, still the biggest party, still the biggest number of votes and the biggest number of MPs, but not enough to govern. Yeah. Because if the others vote down her budget or vote down her legislative programme, um, they would have to have another election or the Queen would invite Jeremy Corbyn, the second biggest party, to see if he could form a, some kind of coalition and govern. Because there are, there are 650 seats in the House of Commons, is that right? That's right. And in order to win an outright majority, you need to get at least 326 of those seats. Correct. Which is what the just Tory... Just over half. Just over half. So that the, as long as you're over 326, then you, you win the majority and your party uh, earns the, the right to form a government. Uh, probably as long as the Queen invites you to do it, which she will, because those are the rules. Um, and the Tories did have more than 326 um, but then since this election, they've actually lost, and then they got less than 326. So how do they then get the right to form a government? Is that what they're doing? Are the Tories still in government? Yes. They, um, they didn't they, win they, the majority, but they did win slightly more than anyone else. They were the biggest party, so she went off to Buckingham Palace, and the Queen said, yes, uh, we must try and form a government, which is the way it happens. It's just a little ritual. Um, but what she's doing is... At this moment, as we speak, Luke, she is in talks with a party from Northern Ireland. Yeah. Now, the political scene in Northern Ireland is very different from anywhere else. It is um, divided on uh, what you might call sectarian lines. The uh, loyalists, who are mainly Protestant, are run by the DUP. Uh-huh. And um, they have... How many seats have they got? Nine? Ten, I um, think, isn't ten. it? Ten. And so if they can come to an agreement that they'll vote with them, then they've just got enough to get through their budget and get through their legislative programme. So this is the this is joining up with the DUP to form a they coalition? They join up with them. It wouldn't no. be a coalition. Okay. Um, they, they would have an agreement on key things, such as the budget, that they would um, vote with them. But what does the DUP want in return? And the um, it's highly controversial because this party was um, born of uh, a strong Protestant Christian um, uh, preacher called Ian Paisley, 
uh, who Ian was, Paisley, who used yes, to speak he, like this. He did, with a strong accent and very, very loud. I would like to ask the Secretary of State a question that everyone in Northern Ireland is asking. If this offer that he got in February and he responded to, an offer that the conflict was over, surely after one exchange he would have known that the conflict wasn't over. And what has happened? We have had Warrington since that. These talks were going on when Warrington took place. This London, this city, the talks were going on while the bombing was going on in this city. And even, and even when the bombing took place in the Shankill Road, the lines were still open. Surely the Secretary of State cannot think that after his behaviour he can have any trust with the Northern Ireland people. And if he wants... If he wants a settlement, the only honourable thing he can do is resign. Order, order, order. And um, yeah. they uh, they have some very old-fashioned views, in in my opinion. They uh, they don't uh, have abortion in Northern Ireland, or hardly, under very strict strict circumstances. So um, that's something that's controversial. Uh, they are hostile to gay rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of them think that homosexuality is a sin. Yeah. Um, and so you can see where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, and and also, we, who knows what they might demand to support the Conservatives. Uh, it's making a lot of the people within the Conservative Party feel very uncomfortable. So, and so we'll see what emerges here. But so, uh, the, the commentators basically say, even with some kind of agreement with the DUP, um, the majority is so slender and um, Theresa May's personal authority has been so damaged that they find it difficult to believe that she can stay there for any great length of time. OK, can we just talk a little bit more about the DUP? Um, that basically it's confidence and supply. Isn't that the name of the deal? Yes, it is. It's a very very technical phrase, and it means that in the the House of Commons, if the ruling party is challenged with a vote of confidence, so that uh, if they lose what is called a vote of confidence, they have to leave office. Uh, So they would agree with them that on any vote of confidence, they would support the government. That's the first thing. And and supply... um, well, that's a difficult word, but it's about money supply. It's about e- economics that basically it means the budget. They'd have to agree right. with the budget. So so essentially it would be with the, the Tories would, would get an agreement with the DUP, which is where the DUP would say, we will support you in, the, in our votes in the House of Commons. But in return, uh, you've got to do some stuff for us. Like you've got to put some of our issues on the agenda and... and uh, we get a, sl- a say over the budget, something like that? Yes, I think they might. I mean, in the end, it, it was probably... I mean, I'm just guessing here, and I might be wrong again, Luke, because, yeah. I mean, obviously, like everybody else, I thought uh, Theresa May would win the election outright. Yeah. Um, I might be wrong, but I, I wouldn't, be, wouldn't be at all surprised if they want some money for Northern Ireland. Right. Uh, they would probably want to say, well, we want to have more devolved power more rights over certain things okay but they would also want a bag of cash to you know um 
be able to do more things that they want to do in Northern Ireland. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a kind of a, uh, an argument about how much money are you going to grant to the devolved parliament in uh, in Northern Ireland, in, in Belfast. Yeah. And the other thing is, of course, nobody knows. The, 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 there are all sorts of highly contentious issues. Uh, the loyalists ha- have a, a marching season coming up in July where they traditionally um, play their music and they dress up in their Orange Order banners and they march through places they they regard their traditional marching routes. Yeah. And in the past, this has caused enormous violence. At the end of the last century, there, there were many, uh, particularly at a place called Porter Down, where the Loyalists would march through the Catholic area yeah. and the Catholics would riot and then the uh, Marches Commission, which is... An, independent organisation ruling on where these things can and cannot go would then say well you can't march down that road and the Protestants would riot and these were very serious riots in ni- late 1990s and yeah. and you never know they might say right well, one of the things we want is to allow our marches to go through down the Galvaki road in Portadown who knows now the, the, the Good Friday Agreement that was signed I guess right at the end of the 90s yeah. maybe 2000 that time that has prevented the conflict, the troubles from coming back. It's a fairly sensitive situation, but it's basically a kind of a, an agreement that's uh, led to peace in Northern Ireland. Isn't it true that um, there is some kind of uh, part of the agreement which says that the government you know, shouldn't favour one side over the other, that it has to be balanced, and that this kind of thing, like giving so much support to the, you know, the loyalists that that somehow could jeopardise the, the, the peace process. Yes, the loyalists and the unionists are the, the same people. The others are the Republicans. Uh, it is the main party being Sinn Féin. Yeah. Uh, they were often called in the old days the political wing of the IRA. Okay. Uh, and they are strongly Republican, mainly Catholic, and their, their ultimate goal is to have a united Ireland. Well, the Good Friday Agreement... Um, brought these two factions together in a power-sharing agreement, okay. uh, like a kind of proportional representation agreement, so that their devolved government in Belfast at Stormont, which is their parliament building, would have the uh, loyalists and the republicans sitting side by side in a joint administration, um, and uh, it worked remarkably well. Um, uh, there were many other issues that were settled as well in the Good Friday Agreement, but that was the main thing. Now, at the moment, as you say, it's a very delicate situation. I hope your listeners can follow all this. But the the um, Republicans have walked out of the um, power sharing at the moment, not for the first time, uh, over a number of issues. And as you indicated, the uh, Westminster government is supposed to try to broker a deal to bring them back together again. Yeah. Well, if the DUP is is effectively supporting the government, it's very difficult to see how the Republicans would accept any deal brokered by the government. Yeah, yeah. So it is a very fragile situation. Um, it is one of many difficult situations facing Theresa May and her colleagues. And, um, of course, Brexit 
is lurking in the background of all this. Yeah, just to give a little bit of background to the Northern Irish situation again, I know we're spending a lot of time there, but uh, we don't normally talk about it on the podcast, and it is part of the United Kingdom and everything, and it's obviously very important at this moment. We were talking there about the the two political parties that have this power-sharing agreement in the Northern Irish Assembly, uh, the DUP, who now are sort of doing this deal with the government, and Sinn Féin, who you described as the political wing of the IRA. They used to yeah. be called that. They used to, I mean, this, not- is, this is a few years ago. Uh, and, of course, um, the, the leading figures in Sinn Féin um, were very, very close to the IRA. Right, OK. Now, now, what about on the other side? So is it this, can you say the same thing about members of the DUP? Were they kind of associated in some way with the, the, the terrorist uh, uh, group is it was it a terrorist group that that also you know did attacks against um republican factions in northern ireland because they were fighting essentially well yes this is delicate territory so yeah some of your listeners in belfast might not agree with me but the, i'll try my best certainly the ira um uh, perpetrated a whole number of of things that you have to put in the category of of terrorism uh, you know they they right. bombed a lot of places in northern ireland a lot of them were as they would say military targets yeah. I mean, they shot soldiers and they shot policemen but they also planted bombs in shopping centers and then they moved their campaign to the mainland and they you know bombed london many times they bombed birmingham manchester many other places and they nearly assassinated margaret thatcher with a bomb placed in her hotel in Brighton when the Conservative conference was on. They, you know, there is no doubt that the IRA campaign was um, a vicious one and it caused many deaths. People should remember that when they get hysterical about the threat of terrorism now. Um, And your younger listeners probably won't realise how uh, serious um, it was at that time. Yeah, I looked at... As for your other question, the, the, the... Protestants had some powerful paramilitary groups. Right, okay, paramilitary. Um, The Protestant paramilitaries uh, who were undoubtedly supported by the politicians in the same way that Sinn Féin was clearly supporting the IRA. Right, okay. Um, And and, um, you can argue forever about, you know, who started what, what who was mainly at fault. But the, the, the Irish Republican movement basically was born of a long period where they were um, not allowed certain jobs. They were not. The yeah. police force was almost entirely Protestant, right. and they felt that they, there was serious social injustice, um, which led to eventually an armed struggle to uh, try to uh, get rid of the British from Northern Ireland. Right now, I, I'm, you know, obviously, I don't mean to suggest that one side is right or one side is wrong at all. And you know, the, the, when you get into the, the language, it's quite important that you know you might call one group terrorists and the other group paramilitaries. I don't mean to you know come down on one side, uh, but there was violence, you know, between. And obviously, from from the point of view of the people, probably in the IRA, they thought they were you know fighting. Uh, a, a legitimate sort of war, you know, that these were military targets, as you said. So very complicated thing. But what's interesting to, interesting to me is that um, during the the election campaign by the Conservatives, they were they attempted to, I guess, smear 
Jeremy Corbyn's name, you know, bring his reputation into dis- disrepute by constantly referring to the people that he'd associated with in the past. And uh, people in the right-wing press or whatever, or the Conservatives, would say that he had um, associated with known terrorists, as they describe them, I think, in the IRA. So it's ironic that the Conservatives uh, were doing this when now they are making a deal with uh, the other side, as it were, you know? Yes, uh, irony is a very interesting word. Yeah. Um, You can try and talk about it afterwards, if you like, or put something on your... Uh, on your website about what does irony mean um it's a extremely difficult word to define and it's used in a whole number of different ways but uh, ironic uh, certainly this is that um the one of the ways that the um the government but particularly their supporters in the popular press was trying to denigrate or run down yeah. Jeremy Corbyn was to say he was a friend of terrorists and, uh, you know, terrorist sympathiser and, and, you know, supported the IRA. Well, it, that isn't true. Um, he, he never supported the IRA. He's always been a man of peace. And he always believed in talking rather than fighting. And he did indeed talk to Sinn Féin um, when uh, they were being prescribed by uh, the Thatcher government. That meant that uh, they were... Um, uh, re- on a kind of a wanted list almost. And these were elected politicians, I have to tell you. Um, and and I think that it is ironic that the Conservatives have been trying to portray Jeremy as Jeremy Corbyn as a, as a, a terrorist sympathiser when they are now talking to the DUP who have their own um, record? It is it is not the same record as no. as the IRA. I mean, the the, the loyalists weren't bombing Belf, uh, Dublin or planting bombs in shopping centres, as far as I'm aware. But it it it, it was certainly um, a very violent um, period between two heavily armed groups. Yes. Yes, it is. It's ironic, isn't it? Uh, and what's the phrase? Like, politics makes strange bedfellows? Is, what was it? That is a phrase, yes. Um, there are many other ironies. Uh, the um, Obviously, the main irony is that uh, Theresa May thought she was going to call an election when she said she wasn't going to in order to strengthen her position, and she is weakened. And Jeremy Corbyn's position is strengthened. Exactly the opposite of what should have happened. Can we just go back to the results again? Because I still think we haven't fully explained exactly what happened. We we said that the Conservatives actually lost seats. I understand they, they lost about 13 seats in total, uh, taking them to below the 326 uh, number of seats that they needed to form a majority. So as we've said, they've been in talks with the DUP to kind of get a situation where they can get support as a minority government. What about Labour? What happened to them? Labour jumped up and um, won a lot of seats, some of them um, extremely unexpected. Um, Where I live, um, there was a Conservative majority of 6,600. And nobody believed that Labour could win that seat, but they did by 1,200 votes. Wow. And uh, so Labour won a lot of seats um uh, in various parts of the country notably in london um and in north of the border it was a different scene altogether um for it was the conservatives who 
took seats away from the Scottish National Party, who were completely dominant, uh, in quite a significant number. So what happened there? Well, the, the, the point is that the Scottish National Party were pushing for a second referendum on Scottish independence. And obviously a lot of people in Scotland don't want Scottish independence and they don't want a second referendum. And so they voted Conservative because they are obviously opposed to a Scottish independence referendum. So that was a completely different election going on. Yeah. But if the Conservatives hadn't won those seats in Scotland... Theresa May would have lost the election. Lost see, it. Yeah. So it's the, it was the Conservatives in Scotland that saved her. Yes, the Conservatives in Scotland saved her. This makes the Conservative leader in Scotland quite a strong figure within the party. Yeah. And um, the, the, what's happening here is all related to Brexit. That um, Remember that the referendum... <laughs> Uh, on Brexit, split the country down the middle. Yes, there was a narrow majority to leave, but there were 48.1% of those who voted who didn't want to leave. And as the months have rolled by, more and more information about what Brexit might mean has come through. And I think few people who voted leave are having their doubts. And so when Theresa May was talking about what the papers call a hard Brexit, yeah. Like, um, we we must take control of our borders, therefore we must control immigration. And if that means leaving the single market, then we will leave the single market. And she actually said, no deal is better than a bad deal, whatever that means. And uh, the, the, um, the, the, the mood, mood in Scotland saying, no, we don't really want to have Scottish independence is coupled with, no, we don't want to leave the EU. And the uh, same in London. London voted in the referendum to stay in the EU. And uh, they are more and more uncomfortable about the idea of a hard Brexit. And it's this balancing act. We've talked about it before. Imagine a set of scales, your, your political scales. On one side of the scales, there's immigration. And when the uh, all the refugees started coming, there was a general hysteria, a bit of a panic about immigration. And that's where the right-wing parties all across London, uh, Europe all got their support from. We must stop this tide of immigration. People were frightened of it and they thought it was out of control. Well, the other side of the scales is the economy. And it's famously the thing that sways elections in the end. And uh, so in Brexit, it's pretty simple. If if you say we don't want no more immigration, it means that we'll have to leave the single market, which is really bad for the economy. And as I said, as time goes by, people are starting to realise that it's going to be really bad news. This week, the City of London is having a, a bit of a, a worry about the notion that it won't be able to um, deal in euro derivatives. Technical doesn't really matter, but it it matters a lot to the city of London. And somebody's estimated that they could lose eighty thousand jobs if they don't have the right to trade in euros, as though the, as countries within the EU can. Because um, London is a big financial centre where lots of um, investment in Europe happens, and uh, the big banks might move uh, their offices from London into places like I don't know Frankfurt or Paris or something. They might. I mean, that's just one example. But the point is that the um, Theresa May has, has discovered that there isn't an appetite for this hard Brexit, which prioritises stopping immigration over the economy of the country. And so she's now 
talking, uh, well, sources close to Downing Street say that they are going to water down their proposals for their government, abandon certain things, and and go for something that is more business-friendly, more jobs-friendly, which is Jeremy Corbyn's position. He, he says he wants a Brexit for jobs. He's not so concerned about immigration. A lot of immigrants are really good for us. And uh, he's right. The, the health service relies hugely on um, uh, people from the rest of the EU who work in the health service. It has done. Quite since- interestingly, this week, did you see the one about the number of nurses applying to work in the UK from the other EU countries? Nope. It's completely collapsed. In that, uh, you know, the figure was there used to be an average monthly application for, uh, it's not exactly applying for a job, but to get the um, qualifications you need if you're going to work in Britain as a nurse. Yeah. And uh, it dropped from somewhere like 380 to 32 or something like that. I don't have got the figures right. But really, all these people in mainland Europe say, well, I'm not going there. And this is just... uh, one profession there are obviously others in the health service doctors but there are seasonal um agricultural workers in large numbers come to this country there are skilled workers who are required and um the idea that you can say we're going to stop immigration is completely nuts in my opinion and uh, i think theresa may's um attitude to say we're going to be tough we're going to get immigration down to less than a hundred thousand whereas it's been standing at somewhere around 300,000 for the last few years, um, is a, a kind of figure plucked out of the air to uh, persuade UKIP voters that they can vote Conservative. But what about all these people who live in certain parts of the country where they see their communities have been, I mean, according to them, overrun with, with people from other countries or other cultures, and they feel like they've lost the culture that uh, they once uh, used to call their home? What about these people? And I, you know, I'm not one of those people, but I read comments on YouTube. I shouldn't read them, but I can't help it. I read these comments on videos, even some of my videos. I did videos a few years ago interviewing people in London. And it's like, you know, what's it like living in London? And I read some of the review uh, comments under there, and there are some awful things being written. People saying, you know, London is now a third world city, or uh, it's Londonistan and that the mayor of London is a Muslim, that the Muslims have taken over this kind of stuff. And there are some people out there who, you know, feel genuinely, um, uh, you know, passionately angry that uh, the country's sort of been taken away from them in some sense. Yes, you're quite right. I mean, I do recognise that there is that feeling around. And the answer to it, in my view, is leadership. I mean, there have always been people like that. Um, but... Uh, and and many of them um, haven't, you know, uh, got a very good education. Yeah. Um, If you, if you, if you think that way, you don't understand that the British Isles is a land of immigrants. It always has been. And um, the fact that London is such a multicultural city seems to me to be something to celebrate. It's always been incredibly multicultural, even you know, back for years, back in the Victorian period, which is you know considered to be like the heyday of the British Empire. London was teeming with different cultures from people from other country, uh, other places and stuff. Liverpool as well, you know, is a, a place where there were so many people from around the world. There was a huge Chinese community, um, a big Caribbean community and so on. It's been multicultural in our big cities ever since the Industrial Revolution. 
Yes, and before that. I mean, yeah. if you want to get really historical, you know, we've been invaded throughout recorded history by the Italians, the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons from Germany, and then the Netherlands, the Dutch uh, traders, the Normans. then the French, the Normans, the Norman French in 1066, and so on and so on. The Spanish didn't and, manage it, though. No, the Spanish didn't make it, but uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, somebody did a DNA analysis, and uh, we've all got... Uh, mainland european dna and it's in us yeah uh, it's the the biggest um contributor to our dna is from germany apparently right 20 percent. so 20%, so, so the, yes i do recognize that sentiment that people yeah. think, think oh, there's too many immigrants but there have always been people who think that way it, it it had after the um uh the expansion of the eu in 2004 uh they called it the big bang when 10 countries joined at once uh, Britain did, along with Ireland, uh, not impose any restrictions on movement at that time, and a lot of people, mainly from Poland, came to Britain. Um, so uh, some people were surprised when they heard, you know, Polish being spoken on the bus and and all that kind of thing. And but the 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 media uh, who are um, have a lot to answer for in this country, the the popular right wing press is disgusting, would feed these prejudices and not um, actually have any kind of rational debate about it. Uh, I think the people who, th- who, who, um, who are violently anti-immigration are in a minority, and uh, it needs leadership to explain that what's good for the country is rational thought, analysis, and the, the health service pressures have very little to do with the immigration. They have everything to do with the changing demographic. Many, many, many or more older people uh, quite rapidly and the health service is under huge pressure as a result. What about those people who say that that uh, acts of terrorism happen as a result of uncontrolled immigration? Uh, I'm not one of those people who says that. Who but says it, that? Well, there's lots of people. I got a comment on my website a while ago from someone after one of the attacks in London had happened, and the comment was, I still don't understand how you can't uh, decide that when these things happen that uh, immigration needs to be, uh, you know, got under control. Oh, I see. So they're not talking so much about EU open borders. They're talking about immigration from the Middle East. And, I suppose and so, other yeah. Places. But also, well, also these. I've, I remember this from the Brexit referendum campaign that people were saying that Europe was a was the gateway through which people were coming in from you know potentially uh, dangerous places. That somehow EU uh, migration and uh, migration from non-EU countries is kind of lumped in as being the same thing because people get into the EU in one place and they can then enter the UK, you know, through the the, the European yes. Open there's an border. awful lot of ill-informed stuff going on. Yeah. Um, during the last election, not this one, the one before, when uh, UKIP did uh, quite well in in gaining more votes, though it didn't get any seats. Um, I mean, they they had put up posters with a picture of lots of Syrian refugees crowding around the border in Macedonia. It looked lo- it looked a lot like sort of it actually looked like Nazi propaganda. It was horrible from and before so, you know, the world before World War Two. They're they're, they're being they're, overwhelmed, you know. Um, yeah, there are, stop it. Well, we weren't being overwhelmed, and we had control of our borders. And in fact, we took hardly any. Syrian refugees, which some people thought was um, pretty pathetic, since uh, 
Italy and in particular Greece was was getting all the boat people and and uh, the rest of the EU didn't show much solidarity. Right. Okay. Well, it's a big subject. Everything is in flux at the moment. There are many things going on. But one thing I will say, Luke, there are a few good things that have come out of this rather chaotic period. Uh-huh. The first one is in this election that's just gone by, young people voted in much larger numbers than they have done for many years. Okay. Uh, they mainly voted Labour, which is you know, why, partly why Jeremy Corbyn did so well. But it's been a long time since young people, students in particular, but also, you know, uh, younger married people, family people, uh, people at work, um, have actually engaged in the political debate. And um, students were famously political in, in the 60s. Here we are in 2017, and finally we've got a lot of young people registering to vote and voting because it's their future, and they're suddenly realising that Brexit is going to affect them they realise that the, um, the the conditions that young people are facing are more and more difficult. It's the younger generation who can't afford to buy a house. It's the younger generation that are in rather poorly paid jobs. Uh, so, um, and, and they have to pay a hell of a lot of money in, in England to go to university and get a degree. Uh, so they come out of their degree course owing hmm, maybe as much as €60,000, €50,000, which is a, not a good way to start your life. No. So a lot of young people are fed up with that and um, and decided they'd get involved. So I, I think it's a good thing that young people uh, got interested and voted. The other thing is that there is a kind of a, a sudden centrist swing. After the immigration crisis and the right wing, the rise of the right wing in the Netherlands and in Italy and in France and in uh, other places... What we're seeing here is a, is a kind of a reflection and a swing back to let's just think about this more carefully. Yeah. So there's Macron in France with a new movement, which is a centrist movement. Uh, the Italian elections are showing uh, a more support for what you might call conventional balanced politics, which puts the economy um, in pole position. And uh, Netherlands, they rejected the idea of going to the far right and here, um, Theresa May's move to uh, to spike the guns, there's a phrase for you, to um, take some of the votes back from UKIP by swinging to the right has backfired spectacularly. And there is a stronger movement now that wants to have a more sensible withdrawal from the EU and a fairer society. Right. So... In this election, then, Theresa May and the Conservatives weakened um, by this misjudgment. Um, what's going to happen to Theresa May now? Um, there are sort of rumours going around that she won't survive as Prime Minister. What do you think? Well, I don't know. Um, certainly she's in a, a poor position. She faced her uh, parliamentary party uh, yesterday, as we speak. Apparently, um, she was penitent. She said um, it was my fault. Penitent. Sorry. She said it was my fault, and uh, but I'll I got us into this mess, and I'll get us out. Yeah. And at the moment, of course, the Conservative Party, um, with Brexit negotiations about to start, uh, it would not be a good time to start some kind of leadership contest. Uh, not to mention the fact that um, there isn't an obvious 
candidate who everybody would rally around to who would be better than Theresa May. So it looks to me as though they will um, they will soldier on, um, but the commentators reckon that um, after the summer break in the autumn there may be some kind of leadership contest, or of course if the arrangement with the DUP doesn't work for them and they lose a crucial vote in the House of Commons, then um, I think that the next scenario would be the Queen would invite Jeremy Corbyn to see if he can get his budget through. The, the way it works is that you have an election, then they 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 come up with a, a legislative programme. These are the laws we're going to pass during this our period in, in power. That then goes to a ritual in the House of Commons called the Queen's Speech. And you may have seen pictures of it. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are all dressed up. Read out uh, the uh, legislative programme of the government. Yeah. That was due to happen on the, this coming Monday, as we speak. Yeah. The same day that the Brexit negotiations are due to start in Brussels. <laughs> oh, God. And they've postponed the Queen's speech because they don't know what she would say. They're still now working on what are we going to put in our legislative programme? Oh, God. Whether the Brexit negotiations will start or not is still a bit vague. I personally think they will. Um, it's now been three months since Theresa May triggered Article 50, saying, right, the clock is ticking, and you've got two years to negotiate the deal, and then you're out. Three months have gone by, and no negotiations have started yet. Okay. It's a mess. It is a, an absolutely incredible mess. And um, you're saying, will Theresa May survive? Well, I can just say that most of the commentators in the newspapers uh, don't think she can survive for very long. So who are we going to um, get then? Boris Johnson? Well, uh, I would be very surprised if it's Boris Johnson because he's a very divisive figure. Um, even within the Conservative Party, there's a strong faction that thinks he's a personality, he's a winner and all that kind of thing. I think there's many other people who think he's an unprincipled rogue, uh, as well as being a bit of a clown. I mean, he is amusing, and he's good good value, and he's not stupid. But um, remember that he um, waited to the very last minute to decide whether to support Remain in the uh, referendum or leave in the referendum. And he had always, as London mayor, been strongly in favour of uh, being in the EU and he wrote in his newspaper columns that it would be very bad news to leave the EU and he emerged and said no I'm I, I think on balance we, we, I, jolly jolly difficult but I think we should leave now look now look and Rick, the, uh, you know, now look, and, and the reason the reason he did that was because he knew that uh, if uh, if the referendum was a leave referendum they would need a leave prime minister and he would be it yeah but his, some of his closest colleagues ditched him. And uh, I think that it would be very difficult for him to convince anybody that he is a man of principle. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So I think, that, I think Theresa May will be there for a while. Uh, she is um, obviously uh, damaged um, quite seriously. Yeah, uh, and the party is very angry that all many MPs have lost their jobs and they've lost this majority thrown away. And it was thrown away by a terrible campaign. Their, their campaign was sloganising. It, it was some stupid policies, and Jeremy Corbyn was facing uh, massive rallies. Mainly, a lot of young people at them, huge rallies around the country. Yeah. And Theresa May was posing with a few through, you know, few 
children holding up vote conservative placards. I mean, there, there couldn't have been a stronger contrast between the styles of the two campaigns. And uh, the longer it went on, the tireder he, she looked, and the longer it went on, the fresher he looked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he's uh, consistently, consistently um, stuck to his policies. And as I said right at the beginning, nobody's really quite sure what Theresa May stands for. Remember, she voted, she campaigned, not very effectively, for Remain in the referendum. And here she is, Prime Minister, saying, you know, we will get the best deal possible for Brexit. So um, she's in a very difficult position. And all because David Cameron made another stupid gamble uh, originally when he called the referendum in the first place, expecting the country uh, to, to vote Remain. I'm sorry to say it's been a very bad period for the Conservative Party. Mrs Thatcher would be turning in her grave if she, she, she could. The, um, uh, yes, it, it'll be interesting to know what historians write about David Cameron. Um, I mean, he was a very personable man, very um, uh, articulate. Loved, um, a- loved animals. Um, loved animals. And um, I think when people write the history books, as they do about prime ministers, you know, they write books about Churchill and Thatcher and Harold yeah, Wilson and yeah. everybody else. What will they say about David Cameron? I'm sorry to say it won't be very flattering. <sighs> what we need is some brilliant uh, statesman to come along and just sort of uh, fix everything, but I've no idea who that would be. Is Jeremy, well, is Jeremy Corbyn the man for the job? Well, obviously he has amazed everybody by being consistent and being logical and persuasive and quite charming and even though the conservative press was throwing everything they could at him smearing him in every possible way he rose above it he didn't react to it and that's the second interesting thing that's come out of this election is that the the press are not as powerful as they used to be and that's all because of social media um you know a lot of younger people aren't interested to know what the Daily Mail says. Yeah. A lot of them don't even listen to the radio news or watch the t- news on television. They get their news from others and they re- retweet things and they um, share things on Facebook and everything else. And that's much more persuasive than um, a screaming headline in the Daily Express. Yeah, there are some really interesting uh, people on social media, people like, you know, YouTubers and other other often comedians or just people who record these videos talking about politics and many of them are young and they come from sort of like different communities in the UK. There are some really interesting voices emerging on social media and I think it does make a difference and certainly young people voted overwhelmingly for Labour in this election uh, and they they also voted uh, for Remain. So, you know, uh, people often talk about social media as a very bad thing you know all the commentary you you usually get about it is how it's it replaces normal social interactions and so on but it's obviously got its good sides as well in the sense that it's breaking away from the the biased forms of uh, media that also exist the, the more traditional stuff Yes, there were. I mean, there was a time when the media barons, as they're called, the powerful media owners, and Rupert Murdoch is the most powerful of them all, um, would um, be uh, often seen in Downing Street. Um, they would be having dinner with the prime minister at his country house and all that kind of stuff. And um, obviously, they exerted a, a huge amount of power over the 
the government of the day uh, in a way that I find uh, obnoxious because I think that uh, it undermines democracy. Um, but now uh, the, the Murdoch press was screaming how awful and disastrous it would be if you voted Labour. So did the, um, the Daily Mail, uh, which is very right-wing. So did the Express, which is so right-wing it's out of sight. And, um, and the, the electorate ignored them. Yeah. Ah, good. Right? Yes. Yeah. Good. And if Jeremy Corbyn did ever get into number 10, you can bet your life he wouldn't be having nice little cosy chats with Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Okay. So we'll just wait and see what happens. I suppose the, the, the next interesting uh, uh, events will be, what, the beginning of the Brexit negotiations? Or Yes, we're waiting for that to actually happen. I think that the European Union has had plenty of time to line itself up. They've got a mandate given to their negotiator, Michel Barnier, uh, who's from the Commission. He's a, essentially a civil servant working on behalf of the 27 member states. They have a mechanism where they can uh, report back to the member states how they're doing to get some kind of um, tacit approval of position. They know they're going to do it in phases. We know roughly what's in phase one. One of the first things that is supposed to be in phase one is the uh, is the status of EU citizens living and working in the UK and British citizens living and working in the EU, which might interest you in particular, Luke. Yep, absolutely. Okay, all right. Well, Dad, thank you again for, for talking um, in such detail about all of this stuff. Um, I, I know for a fact that my listeners do enjoy listening to it. As you always say, oh, I'm sure they won't. Uh, but actually, well, people love we've, we've people we've ranged love over all these things that are elements in this strange melting pot, Northern Ireland, Scotland. Um, you know, how much Brexit influences people's votes, how much uh, the economy um, influences their votes and um, at the moment it is uh, all to play for as they say in sport yeah it is well we look forward to kind of hearing more about this fascinating story as it develops um, all right then well I'll I'll let you go now I suppose you've got things to do right yes you, got things to do you, and um, it, it's very nice to talk to you Luke and I hope your your listeners haven't all fallen asleep and um, we'll talk again because this is a this is a moving story, and you never know what's going to happen next. Okay. I'm glad we didn't really linger on about the terrorist incidents. There were two very nasty uh, terrorist incidents which disrupted this um, election campaign, uh, but I don't think they made any difference to the result. No, and you know, let's not give them any more attention than they deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's it's fairly customary for us to just give a brief mention to football at the end of these episodes we start with the weather then we do the politics and then a little bit of football at the end um but it's it's now june and um the uh the premiership's all done and dusted now isn't it yes it is um chelsea were clear winners and um uh didn't arsenal win the the cup yeah, arsenal I won the so. fa cup yeah um so we've got now got um world cup qualifiers Okay. going on uh, it's uh, the world cup in 2018 isn't it yes and uh, so they're in the qualifying group stages england is clearly at the top of its group um they're actually in the same group as scotland and they played recently against scotland in scotland which is always an intimidating game um and they they played okay it was a 2-2 draw 
which was all right for England, not good for Scotland. They need to to win to have a chance of qualifying. Um, it was a great game, very exciting at the end. Uh, the referee was rubbish, but then again, you get used to that. And uh, as we speak tonight, there's a nice little friendly where they try out new players, and it's England versus France. Hey! Hey! <laughs> okay, well, that might be on telly. I might watch that. Yeah. Yes, uh, you'll probably see a few young players being tried out. You know, that's what they use friendlies for, to try a yeah. few changes. Okay, cool. All right, then. Well, uh, have a nice evening, Dad. Thanks a lot all for right. talking to yeah, us. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing I just sent you to all your, your listeners is cricket. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, 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 um, there is a, a relatively new competition, which is called the 50-over competition. They, they just, it's a crash-bang-wallop form of cricket where they just, you know, uh, have relatively short single innings each and they score loads of runs, smash the ball all over the place. Very entertaining. And it's, um, it's, it's like a little World Cup going on. England um, are in the semi-finals and they knocked out Australia. They're great rivals. Oh, yeah. Hey. So uh, the cricket fans out there, if you're listening in Pakistan, India or places where you play cricket, um, note that the England team is doing all right. But the big one is coming up in November where we play Australia in the big international test series. Uh, so we're all looking forward to that. For the, the Ashes. The Ashes, yes. yeah, against Australia in November in Australia. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Well, we should talk about cricket in, in one episode. We've uh, said that once. before, but I yeah. think that's really a, probably a bridge too far for some of your listeners. That's what you said before too, but I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced that uh, it's not the case. I'm, I'm certain that we could do something okay. interesting about cricket. Well, if England win this 50-over competition, um, then maybe we'll talk about cricket. Okay, good. It's a deal. Okay, have a good evening. You too. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 So there you go. That was uh, the old man there talking about politics again. The old man. I hope he doesn't mind me calling him the old man. I don't mean that he's an old man. It's just what you call your dad, isn't it? Like the old, my old man. It's just an expression that we use to say, you know, to mean your dad. Anyway, that was the old man talking about politics. And um, I hope you now uh, feel a little bit more informed i hope everything's a bit clearer now but equally it might e- it might be even more complicated because it is a complicated situation but i hope you agree that we're quite lucky to be able to listen to my dad talking about it in his typically lucid and articulate way don't forget that you can listen to previous episodes of this podcast in which i have gone into detail about the language of politics in the uk episode 352 goes into detail about the vocabulary of brexit and you can listen to that one again in order to learn some of the key language of that subject Um, also you can listen to episode 82 from way back in January 2012 when I did an episode about voting, elections, politics and government in the UK in which I explain and teach all the essential language that you need to talk about the political process and also you can listen to a funny sketch about a general election. You can find both of those, 352 and 82, in the archive on my website. Uh, That's it for now. As ever, I remind you to join the mailing list on the website, which will mean that you get an email in your inbox whenever I post new content there. That's on the website, teacherluke.co.uk. So, yeah, every time I post new, new content, you'll get an email in your inbox. And 
uh, that's like new episodes of the podcast, but also I sometimes post something when I've been featured on someone else's podcast. And recently I was invited to talk on the English Across the Pond podcast, the Earful Tower podcast, and also the Rock and Roll English podcast. And if you're signed up to the mailing list on the website, then you will get notified of those things and you'll easily be able to listen to those fun conversations that I've had. And you can find out some more about other people's podcasts that you might not know about. Um, I'm going to end this episode uh, after the jingle by playing you parts of the speeches by Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn in the first session of Parliament since the election results came out. So just after the jingle, you'll hear some um, some recordings of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn talking in the House of Commons. And you can listen carefully to the voices of the Prime Minister and the opposition leader as they make their statements about the results and about the democratic process in Parliament over the coming months. Um, the kind of cheering and jeering sounds cheering we know is like yay you know like to congratulate someone and jeering is like the opposite it's like when you criticize someone those sorts of noises you know so it's kind of like here here that's cheering and is jeering okay and they do make those sounds in in the house of commons um you'll you'll hear them in the background that's all of the other MPs sitting in the House of Commons. And it's quite normal to hear them all shouting and cheering in agreement or heckling, laughing or jeering at people that they don't agree with. Um, I wonder if the parliament in your country is as loud and boisterous as it is in the UK. So thanks very much for listening and keep on listening after the jingle if you'd like to hear the words of the Prime Minister, Theresa May, and the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. That's it for this one. I'll speak to you again on the podcast very soon, no doubt. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. As we begin this new parliament, it is clear that our country faces some of the greatest challenges of our time. The challenge of keeping our nation safe, including by defeating the perverted ideology of Islamist extremism. The challenge of securing the best possible Brexit deal and delivering the will of the British people in taking the United Kingdom out of the European Union. And the challenge of spreading opportunity and prosperity to every part of our United Kingdom, so that no one and no community is left behind. In meeting these challenges, what we have seen from the election is that there are parts of our country that remain divided. Divided between young and old, rich and poor, those for whom the future offers a sense of opportunity and those for whom it brings worry and concern. Some people blame politics for these divisions or say there is too much politics. But politics can be an incredible force for good. Conducted in the right way, it can be how we resolve our differences, how we deal with injustices and how we take, not shirk, the big decisions. It's not always glamorous or exciting. But at its best, the duty we share as politicians to serve others in confronting these challenges is a truly noble calling for us all. And the test for all of us is whether we choose to reflect divisions or help the country overcome them. So let us choose in this Parliament to conduct ourselves in a manner fitting to this moment, to debate, to disagree, but in doing so we recognise, to recognise we all want to see a Britain that is stronger, fairer and safe and secure for our children and grandchildren. Yeah.
and that our shared values, interests and ambitions can and must bring us together. As we face difficult challenges ahead, let us come together in a spirit of national unity to keep our country safe and build a stronger, fairer and more prosperous future for everyone in every part of our United Kingdom. Mr Speaker, it is customary on these occasions to congratulate the returning Prime Minister, and I absolutely do so. And I congratulate her on returning, and I'm sure she will agree with me that democracy is a wondrous thing and can throw up some very unexpected results. (laughs) And I'm sure... And I'm sure we all look forward to welcoming the Queen's speech just as soon as the coalition of chaos has been negotiated. And, uh, Mr Speaker, I just let the House know and the rest of the nation know that if that's not possible, the Labour Party stands ready to offer strong and stable leadership in the national interest. Um, Mr Speaker, we look forward to this Parliament, however short it might be, that we can be the voice for change in our society, because more people, particularly young people, than ever before took part in this recent general election. They took part because they wanted to see things done differently in our society. They wanted our Parliament to represent them and deliver change for them. And I I'm looking forward to this Parliament, like no other Parliament ever before, to challenge and hopefully bring about that change. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.